0: Hello everyone and welcome back to the podcast for History, the Journal of the Historical Association. This is episode two of our new series which explores different areas and branches of history and today we are looking at the history of sex and sexuality with an emphasis on early modern Europe. I'm joined today by the wonderful Hannah Johnston. Hannah is a PhD student in the Department of History at Stanford University. Her work focuses on the intersections of gender, sexuality and labour in early modern Italy. Her most recent project, titled A Catalogue of Anne's Labour, Space and the Sex Industry in 16th Century Venice, on which she recently wrote a blog post for the History Journal website, examines the above-mentioned catalogue and the ways in which it represented Venice's sex industry from the perspectives of those who worked in it, those who engaged with it and those who marveled at it from afar. She is also involved as a research coordinator with the Noble Blood Tales podcast, so make sure to check that out too welcome Hannah, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Fantastic. I'm really looking forward to this discussion. So first of all, I'm just wondering for those who might be unfamiliar with the topic, can you kind of give us a bit of an overview of what the history of sex and sexuality actually focuses on, you know, how they're different and kind of how broad actually this is when we're delving into it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So these are these are sort of two somewhat distinct but generally like super overlapping ways of thinking. Uh, I like to think of it about different ways of approaching the history of human intimacy in sort of all its forms, um, and it's I think it's really great because you can sort of use it as a way of approaching all different aspects of life. Um, so it's incredibly broad, but I think. Uh, in terms of differentiating them, I see the, the difference as mainly sort of methodological. And I think probably other historians of sex might have a, a different way of thinking about it. Um, but for me, the history of sex, I think of as thinking about practices or approaches to the, the act or acts themselves. So you might think of the history of desire or eroticism, how people experienced and understood those things Um, The history of pornography is sort of up and coming, which is really exciting. Generally, like cultures surrounding sex, uh, there's a lot of work on literature, theater and performance studies. Um, As I mentioned, the history of pornography, sex and its relationship to print culture and things like that. And sexuality, I see generally as though not entirely as leaning more into social history, thinking about sexual identity and how people did or didn't see themselves as sexual beings. So this is where I sort of think about a lot of the work on queer history, although right now a lot of the newer work tends to also focus on queer desire and eroticism, um, so maybe that would place it more in the history of sex category. But all, but generally, history of sexuality, uh, you know, sometimes thinking about expressions of queer desire, you know, you can think about what those say about queer identity, so it's a little bit of everything. But as distinct as these two things can be, they, they really, really overlap a lot, which is sometimes confusing, but often quite exciting. And I think a really good example of this in a way that I find really helpful to think about it is um, thinking about the history of sodomy laws. So thinking about sodomy, which in the early modern period could refer both to queer sexuality, sex between men or women, but also just referred broadly to sexual acts that were non-procreative, so oral and anal sex in particular, and I think that thinking about sodomy laws and the criminalization of these acts can be really helpful of thinking about the difference between sex and sexuality in terms of the method of thinking about it. So a legal definition of sodomy can tell you something really important about what authorities thought sex was, ab- was or wasn't about. So namely that it shouldn't be about pleasure, it should be about procreation. Um, and other documentation like pornography, as well as records of people who were tried for sodomy can tell you, that no matter what the laws said, people were having sex for pleasure. They were thinking about it in those terms. Um, and then, of course, in terms of queer history, you know, sodomy laws and the documentation of trials and convictions are super important, um, but not an uncomplicated resource for thinking about queer sexuality. It literally just tells you that you know, queer people have always been here. It's a, a place where they survive in the records where they often don't otherwise. So, I hope that's a sort of helpful overview of uh, sort of thinking about practices versus identity. Uh, And obviously it's much messier than that, but that's sort of the way I like to think about it.
0: Uh, That's fantastic, thank you. And I think you've touched on really key points there, thinking about acts and identity, because like you say, it is messy, it's complicated, it's wonderful to look into and, you know, as historians to try and um, pick uh, these histories from what comes down to us. But like you say, there is definitely a delineation between what is history of sex and sex what is the history of sexuality but they do intermingle and overlap and I think it can be easy enough sometimes to just pick up a big book and end up conflating the two a little bit but how does your own research kind of fall into that
1: yeah so lately my research has been less about I think Either acts or identity, and more about um, sexual labor. So, I've been mostly working on the history of sex work um, in Venice and more recently, Rome. And I think, you know, maybe my my way of thinking about how it fits into all this is thinking about um, sex as a part of daily life and a part of social history, just outside of thinking purely about sex and sexuality. It's, you know, a part of the sort of bigger fabric. So i as you mentioned i was I worked last year on a project um working with this you know really, really interesting catalogue of courtesans, placing them in you know the spaces of Venice, thinking of how you know visualizing that catalog can help you think about networks of women in the ways that you know space is a part of an industry recently, I've been getting very interested in sex workers' wills and the what they tell us about testamentary culture, so I think if you know as approaching the history of sex or sexuality, wills are not very sexy at all. Um, But I have really enjoyed thinking about how these wills show um, these, I mean, mostly I've been working on, on women, how they see themselves as a part of society. So they're, they're acting out Um, these very standard testamentary practices like charitable bequests or leaving certain amounts of money to their heirs or sometimes to their lovers, which was the thing I was really interested in most recently. Um, But it can tell you how sex or sex work are, are a part of these broader testamentary cultures and how sex workers in particular are taking part in this, you know, broader social act as opposed to being, I think, siphoned off to the side, which is sometimes where we, we like to think about them, uh, which is just not true. But yeah, so I've been kind of outside of the, the actual scholarship on sex and sexuality. I've been a little bit outside of uh, thinking about sex and sexuality in and of themselves, but I, I really like to think of them as lenses for looking at a, a sort of broader social history, especially as it relates to labor and uh, the work of women in many respects.
0: That's really interesting because that's actually making me think about how much agency or power. I know those are two uh, quite loaded terms that we struggle to find sometimes. But when we're, I imagine as you're going through these wills, that you're able to track these women's voices a bit more and kind of give them a centre stage uh, in history, you know, to put them back into the forefront of discussions and that these aren't just women who are imped or. Um, taking control of obviously I'm sure there is an element of lack of agency and control to their lives but it sounds like actually they might have had more influence over their own lives and what happened to their belongings what happened uh to their legacy than perhaps you might think
1: yeah and it's always complicated um you know I've mostly been just because of the pandemic I've only been able to access uh, for the most part things that are either local to me or are digitized which primarily with the history of sex work is going to be on courtesans, which were at least in the Italian context, often very wealthy, quite influential, had much more agency relative to other kinds of sex workers. So it's always a sort of line to walk thinking about uh, agency or exploitation, um, because it, it could be really dependent on things like class or just sort of the chance circumstance. But yeah, I think it's been, it's been really, really interesting to Uh, especially to think about looking at sex workers wills as a means of getting at a broader testamentary culture, because I think we often do the opposite. We think about, you know, looking at testamentary culture and thinking about how um, sex workers or other marginalized groups are different. And I really like the idea of looking at them as the the test case, because I think it's, I mean, I think it's just interesting and you learn, you learn more that way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And kind of going back to the broader discussion of it now, so what are some of the key ideas or key themes in the history of sex and sexuality that people might want to find more about? You mentioned the history of pornography, for example, that's been coming to wider attention.
1: Yeah, I think that's one thing that I have, I have just started getting into, I really haven't read much. um, But I think it's, you know, it's something that, you, thinking about pornography as, as literature, I think is a sort of fresh idea, at least to me, I'm, you know, as someone who's less familiar with the broader literature on it. Um, so that's one thing that I think is so interesting. And I, I, the, you know, the pieces I've read are so shocking. I think um, there's this sense that you might think like people in the early modern period are sort of stodgy and repressed, and then reading early modern pornography immediately dissipates that notion. It is it's kind of, it's shockingly uh, explicit sometimes, um, which is just sort of a real moment of, I don't know, relating to the past in a different way. Um, So that's definitely one one thing that I would recommend if someone is interested uh, in looking into the history of pornography. Another, a couple of things that really, I think, thinking back to when I first started studying this stuff that really surprised me, I think the first thing is just sort of how ambivalent people could be about some of the things like sex work or queer sexuality um, in the early modern period, at least sort of relative to what we might expect. Like I said, you know, we expect this sort of stodgy repressedness. And that's not to say that you know, these individuals weren't met with you know, a lot of violence because they were. Um, and you know, looking at laws like sodomy laws tells you that, you know, the penalties were severe uh, and, and it, they varied by place to place, but they could be really, really terrible. But I think we have this sort of popular narrative that violence, you know, that violence and the sort of punishments for various uh, sexual acts or for sex work were a reflection of the way everyone felt about these things, when in reality, I think they were more a response to how ubiquitous they were. So th- I think that's one of the key ideas that I've really glommed on to is, you know, reading into this history and seeing how, you know. People have been queer for, and you know, that's sort of a maybe a controversial statement. Uh, sometimes people like to get into actors' categories, but I tend to. Uh, I think that it is useful to us to say that people have been queer as long as we've been people. And thinking about you know the ways that authorities responded to uh, sex and sexuality in a broad sense were not the ways that everyone thought about it. So I think that's one really interesting thing and i think the other thing and the other thing that really comes to mind is more of a i don't know a methodology or a research-based idea but i've really really enjoyed learning that you can get at these sorts of histories from pretty much any kind of document if you get creative like clearly i'm a fan of catalogs and lists and wills and inventories but i think it, it responds to one of the biggest problems in in this field and also in the history of gender, of race, or really any sort of marginalized group or concept is the source problem, that these were not the kinds of sources that would be preserved. Um, So you have these just terrible, heartbreaking, massive absences in the archive. And I think some of my favorite works have been ones that really get around this problem in a creative way and look at like visual sources and maps and um, boring financial documents So I think that's one of the sort of key things is you're, you know, if you dive into the history of sexuality, you might find yourself reading about, you know, taxes or something that feels like it shouldn't be a part of it, but it is, uh, I think, a really interesting, creative way of of getting at the problem that is, you know, nobody, we, I, I dream of finding a source that's like, my name is so-and-so, and here's what I think about my sexual identity, but we don't really have those for the most part. So that is, I think, some of the key things that come to mind for
0: me. That's great. And I think it's so true for so many of us who look at the past that we wish we had more of people's voices in it, you know, especially when it comes to matters of the heart of sexual identity or their involvement in certain events. And for instance, you know, we really just want that concrete evidence it goes look we want know. a journal so that so that people will you
1: know people in the future will read and they'll know exactly what I think about about myself
0: yeah I this is where Twitter comes into things in the sense though isn't it you know how much of a digital footprint are we leaving with Twitter and Facebook and everything oh else
1: <laughs> I don't want anyone to read my tweets <laughs> they're not worth preserving <laughs>
0: And uh, what are some more of the current themes or trends in the history of sex and sexuality that have come to fruition lately?
1: Um, hmm. So I, I think in the history of sex and sexuality, actually, too, I think um, I've been seeing a lot of literary studies lately. So I I, I mean, I think that's part of the response to the source problem is looking looking for themes of sex, desire, sexual identity in a wide variety of literary sources just because those are sometimes what's available. They're really interesting. I am definitely not a literary historian or a literature studies person, but I I so admire being able to read into those sorts of things. And the, the work that comes out of it is so interesting to read. I also get the sense that sex and desire are being sort of brought into a wider range of other fields, which is something that I'm interested in in my own research. Um, one of my one of my favorite books that I think is I I, I think is a great entry into some of these ideas is um, the Prince's Body by Valeria Finucci. It's it's a, a case study of Vincenzo Gonzaga, the Duke of Mantua, and the study itself is lent more to like the history of medicine and the body, but she really gets into ideas about um, desire and masculinity and beauty. And I think it's one of, it's an example of, I think one of the ways that thinking about, you know, these themes that have come up in the history of sex and sexuality are kind of making their way into other fields, which I think is just fantastic.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm a royal studies historian primarily, and we can definitely see how much looking at sex and sexuality has really kind of become part, an integral part of our work, much like gender in a sense, you know some think it's a lens that you really need to apply to your work if you're looking at figures and biographies and everything else because otherwise you're not getting a round enough view of that person or yeah. their motivations or their activities and what would you say some of the biggest developments have been in how we kind of study these histories uh, particularly in relation to women over the last decade
1: I think this is probably a longer trend than just a decade. Um, but one of the things that I think has been a really important shift uh, in the scholarship is that it's it's been increasingly moving towards thinking about women from their own perspective, especially when it comes to sex. I think scholars have been thinking you know, sort of generally about how women experience desire without necessarily tying it to this broader, you know, overarching conventions of you know what we might call like phallocentric sexuality or sexuality that's sort of centered around masculine desire and how that's experienced. So I think that's been the sort of the thing that stands out the most to me. I think there's also been a lot more of a a focused and consistent interest in queer women and much more recently trans women. So there's, I think, a much broader scope nowadays of the, um, the early modern female experience of sex and sexuality that's really centered on a more diverse range of different kinds of women, um, and on focusing on how they see themselves uh, and their own sexualities, rather than which you know is always hard to get at. You know, we're always coming back to the source problem, but it's I think you know there's been a lot of really creative work uh, that that gets at those sorts of things.
0: Yeah, because again, it's that source issue eternal that you know you want to look at these histories of women you want to look at the history of the marginalized and so rarely have something in their own voice which would enable us to definitively answer the question but when you think about the history of sexuality and sex work and so on you know so much of it has started from looking at male sexuality or those who identify as men and actually some of that has been foregrounded by women's studies or gender studies work so it they do all interlink and it's so important that we kind of use the developments use the methodologies of other fields to actually help pull uh these voices out of the past whether that's marginalized women whether that's trans women and trans men you know whether that's non-binary folks it's you know, it's so important that we do get these voices into existence. But what you're working on, like, how has the study of the history of courtesans science and sex work, labour, in the early modern period developed? Who's been some of the key works uh, for this kind of area that you're looking into?
1: Yeah, I would say this is, you know, generally a pretty regionally specific thing. But I, I would say across the board, the biggest shift that that I can think of has been generally A sort of movement from from focusing on responses to sex workers or ideas about sex workers like the ways it was legislated or. the ways it was written about or satirized towards thinking about sex work as part of the social fabric or a kind of Labor to be understood in economic terms and, of course, I think to thinking about sex workers both as a category of worker and as individuals, as subjects worthy of study in their own right, rather than as sort of sensational subjects of study. Um, And I don't think this is, uh, not to say that this is, that ideas about sex workers isn't a useful thing to study, because I think it's been really important, especially for just setting the stage of, you know, the kind of milieu that Uh, you know, these, these people were working in. And also not to say that we've, you know, sort of walked into some utopia of sex work historiography, because I think there is still a long way to go, especially in terms of moving away from the sort of sensationalism of, of thinking about early modern sex workers. But I think the trends are moving in a a really interesting direction, broadly. Um, In terms of historians, I'm most familiar with the literature on Venice and freshly, to a, so, so to a lesser extent, Rome. But some of the the key scholars that come to mind, so the one of the kind of foundational surveys of sex work, particularly of courtesans in, in Venice in the 16th century, uh, was Rita Casagrande de villaviera She was writing in the late 60s, and it's just, it's cited constantly all the time. And I think it's just a pretty, like, relatively even-tempered you know, tells you about the sumptuary laws that govern sex workers in Venice, the, you know, the broad scope of how the industry worked, how courtesans functioned. Um, So that's a, that's a really important one. I am, I love Tita Rosenthal's biography of Veronica Franco, The Honest Courtesan, which she wrote in, in the, in 1992. It's, you know, so it's not on sex work more broadly, but I think brings in a lot of the, the literature on sex work obviously made, made Veronica Franco the sort of household name in studies of sex work in Venice, spawned the, the movie Dangerous Beauty, which I had the chance to watch for the first time recently. And my, my blasphemous history opinion is that I think period dramas can be delightful. I thought it was a, I, I don't think it's really supposed to be a comedy, but I thought it was a very funny movie and just you know always exciting to see the things that I'm interested in be turned into popular films. But I think that with that book is, is a sort of important study of a, a sex worker, a courtesan in her own right, how she saw her world. Veronica Franco was also a poet. So, you know, talks a lot about her, her writing and her work. One of the, in Venice, so now the, there's, you know, a lot of work thinking about the sort of business of sex work. Clark wrote on the, the business of, of prostitution more in the medieval period in the, I think, 14th and 15th centuries. Sandra Weddle wrote this really awesome spatial history of sex work and mo- focused on mostly municipal brothels. So thinking about more of the, the public sex workers that were serving you know, the broader public of Venice rather than the courtesans who were serving uh, the patriciate. So that I think is one of the really, for me, one of the really interesting works, obviously very relevant to my own interests uh, in Venice. In Rome, one of my favorite books is Tessa Story's *Carnal Commerce in Counter Reformation Rome*, and she does a lot of the things, the sort of methodologies that I'm interested in. She is she works a lot on the material culture of sex workers, thinking about how they related to their things. The uh, she looks she's she looks a little bit at wills and how um, you know their bequests work, their ownership of luxurious goods like paintings or jewelry. So I'm a big fan of, of that work. Um, and then another really, I think, important historian of, of sex work in Rome that she she works on all manner of things is Libby Cohen, who's, she also thinks about urban space, uh, along with Tessa's story, thinking about sex workers as a part of urban life. And she also, you know, she and her husband have worked a, a ton in the, the Roman, the state archives on criminal records and testimonies from criminal trials. And she has this this lovely article uh, sort of resurrecting the lives of a, a, I think two sex workers from the notarial records which I think is always a really great I mean that's one of the delights of Italian uh, history is the criminal records are so robust and you know the notarial culture everything gets written down um, so it makes them a really great resource um, so those are the people who really come to mind uh, for me just you know the sort of scholarship that I've drawn on but I'm sure there's you know, millions and billions of other really great works out there.
0: No, that's quite a fantastic list for our, our listeners to go and burrow into if they're interested because uh, yes. that sounds like a fascinating range of uh, work which you're drawing upon. Mm-hmm. And you know, looking forward, how would you like to kind of see the history of sex and sexuality develop?
1: This is yeah, this is uh this is a tough question. I think for me I mean, I see, you know, the, the field becoming more, I think, gender and sexuality expansive. And I would love to see works that really think broadly about, you know, sex and sexuality and gender together rather than really focusing on these, you know, small subsections, which sometimes you have to do. So that's something I would love to see in a perfect world. I would love to see more social histories of, of sexuality, particularly queer sexuality. Uh, that doesn't rely on criminal records. Cause I I think it's, you know, that's one of the best sources, especially in the Italian context, just for getting, you know, names and lives. But I think it, it makes a really sometimes uncomfortable conflation uh, between sexuality and criminality. And one of the things that I really find myself troubled by, this comes up in you know, broader histories of sex and sexuality, but I think particularly with queer sexuality, there's a a real conflation between sex and sexual violence um, that is hard to get away from when you're using criminal records because sodomy laws didn't differentiate between consensual uh, sex and sexual violence. It was, you know, just sort of a broad, uh, for the most part, and obviously regionally varying, um, but for the most part, it was just sort of a blanket law. So I think that's something I would love to see. I don't, you know, that's I uh, I don't know what what sorts of sources you would look at otherwise, because so that's always a hard question. But that is my my dream. Uh, my dream study would I think be being able to get at those things without having to rely on records that I think don't always paint the the best picture of of how people experience themselves.
0: Yeah, I mean, you can absolutely dream of a trove of records. You know, that would be amazing if somehow there is you know if you've managed to make your research trip to venice and suddenly find some journals or diaries or more catalogues even would be fantastic that would be the dream (laughs) (sighs) and are there any I know you spoke about some of the key historians for the work you're doing, but are there any particular works you would kind of like advise for the general public or for scholars who are kind of like looking for an introduction to the topic and some of the latest research?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I do, I must recommend Tessa Story's book. It's, you know, I don't know if it's necessarily an introduction, but I think it's a I think it's really like beautifully written and interesting to read. And it, I think it retails, apologies to people who aren't in the U.S., I think for about $45. Um, but there are lots of used books available since it came out in 2008. So it's been a little bit. So I think that's a really interesting look at uh, sex work in Rome. In terms of sexuality, one of my favorite works that it came out in the 90s. So you wouldn't really get a look at you know how the scholarship has developed since. But Michael Rokey's Forbidden Friendships is one of my favorites it's a sort of thick read in that, you know, the every, every, every paragraph has some like really important information. So it sort of takes a while, but it's all really, really interesting. And I don't think it's, you know, necessarily too academic. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, obviously very erudite and scholarly, but not uh, hard to read, but it's you know like 35 or $36. Also easy to find used copies. Um, In terms of thinking broadly about like an introduction to the historiography, a really great collected volume came out a couple of years ago by, or edited by Jacqueline Murray and Nicholas Terpstra. It's called uh, Sex, Gender, and Sexuality in Renaissance Italy. Also the similar price point, but they have this really lovely introduction that like tells you everything that's happened in the history, in the historiography of sex and sexuality. It was a mainstay for me in my first year of graduate school, trying to figure out, you know, what on earth this, this field was about. Um, So I highly recommend it. And then in terms of you know, some options that might be a little bit more affordable. I am a big fan of the work of Guido Ruggiero. His works, Machiavelli and Love and the Boundaries of Eros are both, they're both on the cheaper side and they're both really, really interesting introductions to the history of sexuality. Boundaries of Eros happens to be one of the early works that uses criminal records to get at the history of sexuality. So it's a really like important foundational work too, which is great. And then a book that I just acquired uh, that I'm very excited to read is Diane Wolfthal's In and Out of the Marital Bed. And she, I think this is a great example of a book that takes, is, looks for the history of sex in other fields. So this is a mostly like art historical book, I would call it. Um, and she's looking for the history of sex in in visual sources that aren't often thought about that way. So she's looking at portraiture, she's looking at you know, all kinds of visual things that you might not think of as sexual, but she, she comes upon it and, and tells us something really new and interesting. So I'm, I'm actually very excited to read that one uh, a little bit more deeply. I've, I've gotten into it a bit, but I do, I do recommend it.
0: It's always good to have something for the summer reading list. Now yeah. we're finally <laughs> at the point of the year where we're getting sunshine. Yes. Got some exciting to delve into. And I also just wanted to give a shout out to actually Kate Listers, Harlots, Holes, and Hackabouts because uh, oh yeah, from, it's fantastic. I do really enjoy it. So awesome.
1: Well, I have uh, I have a curious history of sex. I I actually have not gotten to read yet.
0: Yeah, they are both entertaining and hilarious. So they're definitely uh, accessible intros to the topic as well. If people yeah. are interested, so. Yeah, Harlot's Wars and Hackabouts. It's an entire history, like global history of sex for sale. So it's very much uh, looking at case studies from each country or whatever. So it's not, uh, you know, a very in depth look. It's a much more kind of like broad discussion of all the wonderful things. But yeah, I think when I send this podcast out, I'll put together like a little reading list for everyone. I'll be like, here's yeah. everything you would ever need, guys. Like, Let's go and have a read. Thank you so much for joining me today to kind of give us a bit of a whistle stop tour through the history of sex and sexuality, and you know, tell us about your research and what you're looking what you're looking to do going forward. I think I'm really excited to see uh, where your doctoral research takes you, and yeah. hear some more about other sex workers because I mean, I loved your courtesans piece that you did. But um, thank
1: you so really- much.
0: Yeah, I'm really interested to see what more you dig out uh, during the course of your research. Thank you. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we'll see.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. This was so fun.
0: Very welcome. Thank you.